you're listening to a City on a Hill podcast. We'd love you to use and share this podcast, but please refrain from editing the content without permission from City on a Hill. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au. Judah and Israel were as many as the sand by the sea. They ate and drank and were happy. Solomon ruled over all the kingdoms from the Euphrates to the land of the Philistines and to the border of Egypt. They brought tribute and served Solomon all the days of his life. Solomon's provision for one day was 30 cores of fine flour and 60 cores of meal, 10 fat oxen, 20 pasture-fed cattle, 100 sheep besides deer, gazelles, roebucks, and fattened fowl. For he had dominion over all the region west of the Euphrates, from Tifsa to Gaza, over all the kings west of the Euphrates. And he had peace on all sides around him. And Judah and Israel lived in safety. From Dan even to Beersheba, every man under his vine and under his fig tree all the days of Solomon. Solomon also had 40,000 stalls of horses for his chariots and 12,000 horsemen. And those officers supplied provisions for King Solomon and for all who came to King Solomon's table, each one in his month. They let nothing be lacking. Barley also and straw for the horses and swift steeds they brought to the place where it was required each according to his duty. And God gave Solomon wisdom and understanding beyond measure, and breadth of mind like the sand on the seashore, so that Solomon's wisdom surpassed the wisdom of all the people of the east and all the wisdom of Egypt. For he was wiser than all other men, wiser than Ethan the Ezraite, and Haman, and Calcol, and Darda the sons of Mahol and his fame was in all the surrounding nations. He also spoke 3,000 proverbs, and his songs were 1,005. He spoke of trees from the cedar that is in Lebanon to the hyssop that grows out of the wall. He spoke also of beasts and of birds and of reptiles and of fish. And people of all nations came to hear the wisdom of Solomon and from all the kings of the earth who had heard of his wisdom. Um, well, good morning. Uh, it's great to see your beautiful faces uh, now that I no longer have to look at masks. So, uh, so good that we can have restrictions ease. Um, so good that we can still continue to meet. Uh, my name's Mike. Um, if I haven't had the joy of meeting you yet, as Dave mentioned, I get to serve here as one of the pastors here at City on a Hill. Uh, well, hey, keep your Bibles open. Um, if you don't own a Bible, we'd love to, uh, to give you one. Uh, come see our team at the info desk afterwards. We're going to be covering 10 chapters today. Uh, so we're going to be sort of flicking around a little bit. So paper Bibles, really helpful if you have one. Uh, bring them next week uh, if you're kind of on your phone. Uh, that'll, that'll serve you well. Uh, I want to ask you guys a question, though, a uh, very important question. What was the first video game console that you played? What was the first video game console you played? Maybe it was a Nintendo 64. 
Maybe it was a PlayStation. Maybe it was a Super Nintendo. For me, it was something even older than that, showing my age a little bit. It was a Sega Master System 2. Hands up, who's even heard of that? Yes, yeah, so a hand was straight up, even before I asked. Thank you, brother. Um, Sega Master System 2, this old school console from like I was playing in the, the 90s. Now, I played this game, right? This game, it was called Mickey Mouse and the Castle of Illusion. Now, check out those graphics. How good is that? It looks even better on the big screen, or pixelated. Um, that pixel, yeah, that, that's you. That's the character you play. Um, so I, I played this game, right? Mickey Mouse and the Castle of Illusion. And to get past the first level, as you can see, you had to kind of jump over this like giant snake. I think you had to like chuck the apple in the mouth, and if you didn't, it, the snake would swallow you up. And th- th- as a five-year-old, that used to <laughs> give me great grief and nightmares. And actually, since I can remember, since then, um, I, I have recurring dreams of snakes. And do, things that snakes shouldn't do, like things that snakes jumping up and attacking me, snakes kind of wrapping around the house that are hundreds of meters of long. Um, I've had this kind of this fear of, of snakes. Uh, and last week, we played a video of a snake, kind of even extended version of that. The snake, it's kind of you're drifting around, it's going up on a chair. Uh, and seriously, the next day, I was, I was a bit affected. I, I even teared up the next day. I, I kid you not. Um, you know, snakes, like I've held them before, but I think the thing that freaks me out is sort of the unknownness of snakes. Uh, when, when snakes kind of get a bit, you know, a bit mythical, a bit mysterious, that's the thing that sort of gets to me, the power that they might have. If you were affected by that little video or the video we played last week, you're not alone. I'm with you. Uh, solidarity, we'll have a cry out um, in the foyer afterwards together if you want. Uh, but I think there's something right about it affecting us. It should make us uncomfortable. That's the point. See, way back in Genesis chapter 3, we we see a snake, a snake who tries to compete with the kingdom of God. He promises Adam and Eve blessing and power, and he tempts them. They eat the fruit, they disobey God, and sin enters into the world. And God, he judges the snake, he curses the snake. This is what he says to, to the snake in Genesis 3, 15. He says, I will put enmity between you and the woman, that's Eve, between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. God's saying is there's going to be enmity, there's going to be tension between the snake, between Satan, and between the descendants of Eve, between humanity. It's going to be conflict between the dark forces of this world and the people of God. But someone is going to arise from Eve's family who will crush the snake's head. And yet the snake will try to bite away at our ankles. The Bible, it's not one kind of, you know, it's not a collection of random stories and proverbs. Even though it was written, um, you know, over 2,000 years, 40 different authors in three continents, three languages, it's one big unified story. It's one big story of God's big picture, His purposes for humanity, that God graciously includes us in and invites us to become part of. And one of the key questions that the Bible asks is, who will be this snake crusher? And, and throughout the Bible, we see this question kind of being asked in different ways. And 
Uh, one of the, the big key chapters in understanding the Old Testament, indeed, indeed the whole Bible, is 2 Samuel chapter 7. So if you've got a Bible, open it up to 2 Samuel chapter 7. It's the book just before 1 Kings that we'll be looking at today that we read. Now, 2 Samuel, it's a significant chapter in the Bible. Uh, it's where God's people, uh, they're living in the promised land. They're living in Israel. King David, who's the, the high king, the, the kind of king that all the other kings are compared to, he's, he's reigning and God gives him uh, these promises. So have a look um, at verse 12 of 2 Samuel chapter 7. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, God says to David, who shall come from your body and I'll establish his kingdom. So David, he'll have a son who will establish his kingdom. What, what's what's going to happen? Well, let's keep reading. What's the son going to do? He shall build a house for my name and I'll establish the throne of his kingdom forever. It's going to build a house. And uh, that's where the kingdom will be established. What, keep reading. Verse 14, I'll, I'll be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I'll discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the son of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away before you. And your house will be a, shall be a made a kingdom forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. So the question is, who will sit on that throne? Which son of David is going to be worthy to, to sit on that throne and ultimately crush that snake? Now, we're, we're kicking off, as Dave said, we're kicking off a new series today, preparing us for Christmas called The Coming King. We're going to be looking at the rise and fall of Israel, but we're going to see how God is gracious and in control all throughout. You know, the video that we saw uh, and even the extended version shows the snake kind of crawling around and even trying to get onto the throne, uh, trying to be the leader, actually, where God's leader, where God's king should be. And so the question, the big question we're going to look at today, and we'll, we'll explore this over the coming weeks, is who is worthy to sit on that throne? Who is the one that can fulfill the promises given to David? Uh, well, keep your Bibles open. And today we're going to meet a son of David. We're going to meet Solomon. And uh, his word, his name in Hebrew, it's, it's Shlomo. Can everyone say Shlomo? Shlomo, there you go. If, you are, if you're expecting, you know, thinking a boy's name, there's one for you. Keep that in your pocket. Um, Shlomo, it means peace, actually. Um, it's where you get the word shalom from, if you've heard that word as well. So this man, Shlomo, Solomon, is he going to be the one? We're going to see three things about him. We're going to see the wisdom of Solomon, the wealth of Solomon, and the worship of Solomon. So point one, the wisdom of Solomon. We'll turn with me to 1 Kings uh, chapter 3, just a little bit just before what was read to us. 1 Kings chapter 3. And here we meet Solomon, verse Three, Solomon loved the Lord, walking in the statutes of David, his father. Things seemed to be good. Solomon, he loved the Lord. In fact, that's the only time in the whole Old Testament that someone's described in that way. Uh, he loved God. And like his dad, he, he, he walked in his statutes. He was obedient to to, to God, um, like David was. Keep reading. Verse 5, um, at Gibeon, the Lord appeared um, to Solomon in a dream by night, and God said, Ask what I shall give you. So God, he appears to Solomon in a dream and says, Hey, I'll give you whatever you want. What would you say if God said that to you? If God said, Hey, you can have whatever you want. 
I remember the first, this is like the first prayer I can remember praying when I was five. Uh, I was on holidays and I said, dear God, when I come back, can you fill my room with golden bombs? Golden bombs. I was five. I, I liked gold. I liked bombs. Um, I didn't like snakes. Um, and so th- th- I prayed for golden bombs. God did not say yes to that prayer, uh, which is a good thing. God sometimes doesn't always answer prayers the way we want. But what does Solomon ask? Well, we'll see verse 6. And Solomon said, You've shown great and steadfast love to your servant David, my father, uh, because he's walked before you in faithfulness, in righteousness, and in uprightness of heart toward you. And you've kept for him this great and steadfast love and given him a, a son to sit on his throne this day. You see, Solomon, he starts his prayer. We can learn from this. He starts his prayer just saying who God is and what he's done. Amen. That's a good prayer. And, and now verse 7, O Lord my God, you have made your servant king in place of David my father, although I am but a little child. I do not know how to go out or how to come in. And your servant into the midst of all your people whom you have chosen, a great people, too many to be numbered or counted for multitude. Uh, Solomon, he's, he's saying he's like a little kid. God's given him this huge task of, of being the king of God's people. There's so many people, we can't even count them. And he's like, who am I to do this? There's this great attitude of posture of humility in response to who God is and what he's done. Like, who am I? That's a good prayer. And so what does Solomon ask? He says, verse 9, Give your servant, therefore, an understanding mind to govern your people, that I, I might discern between good and evil. For who is able to govern this, your great people? See, Solomon, he says, I need help. I need to know what's right, what's wrong. I need, I need wisdom to make good decisions for, for not just me, but for half of, of your people. Like, help me in this. That's a good prayer. And as a side, like that's a prayer that we can be praying for our leaders too, uh, whether in government or business or at church. Prayer that, that we would have wisdom to, to make good decisions and know between right and wrong. So how does Solomon, how, how does God respond to Solomon's prayer? You know, keep reading verse 10. It pleased the Lord that Solomon had asked this. And God said to him, because you've asked this and have not asked for yourself long life or riches or the life of your enemies, but have asked for yourself understanding to discern what is right. Behold, I now do according to your word. Behold, I give you a wise and discerning mind so that none like you has been before you and none like you shall arise after you. God, he answers Solomon's prayer with a resounding yes. Solomon in humility, um, in, in awe of who God is, prays this prayer and God graciously gives him wisdom. And so we see uh, with the, um, the first episode of, of his wisdom in, in verse 16. This is quite a, a famous verse. It's in a famous kind of little episode. It's in, um, it's in a bunch of kids' Bibles. Um, but actually, in, in my, my Bible that I read to my daughter, it just got two women uh, come up. But they're, they're a bit more than women. They've got a particular job. Uh, verse 16, Then two prostitutes, they came to the king and stood before him. The one woman said, O Lord my God, this woman and I live in the same house. And I, give birth to, I gave birth to this child while she was in my house. And on the third day after I gave birth, this woman also gave birth and we were alone. There's two women, prostitutes, living in a brothel. Uh, they both have babies. Like this is a, a suspicious kind of weird situation for a king uh, to be c- c- confronted with. 
And so what happens? Well, basically, these women, they argue over who is the real mum. One, uh, one baby dies. Um, one woman says that the baby died because the other woman rolled over it. So there's only one living boy. Uh, and they're arguing. One says it's mine. The other one says it's mine. What does Solomon do? How does he respond to this kind of weird but sad, tragic situation? Well, um, come have a look with me in verse 24. The king says, bring me a sword. It's a bit of a weird flex, Solomon. Bring me a sword. It gets worse. Is he going to kill the woman like prostitution? It wasn't exactly kind of an esteemed career choice back then. Um, what, what does he do? Well, verse 25, the king says, divide the living child in two and give half to one and half to the other. That's a bit odd. The king, he's meant to be the wise one, chop the baby in two. What happens then? Well, we see that the true mum, she speaks up. Uh, she says in verse 20, 26 that her heart yearns for her son. She says, no, no, I couldn't possibly bear with that other woman. You go and take the baby. And so at that point, Solomon realizes who the true mum is and says, the baby is yours. Go in peace. And verse 28, what happens? All Israel, they respond to this. And uh, they respond and they're, they're in awe of the judgment that the king had given and, and had rendered and that they perceived that the wisdom of God was in him to do justice. See, the author here uh, includes uh, this famous story, and indeed there were countless stories of Solomon's acting wisely, as to kind of set up. Uh, this is kind of the period of wisdom, a period of good decisions and, um, and fortitude that Solomon would make. And check out, if you flick over to chapter 4, uh, chapter 4, which is the bit that was read, this just kind of describes uh, a bit more about his wisdom. Chapter 4, verse 29. And God gave Solomon wisdom and understanding beyond measure and the breadth of mind like the sand on the seashore, so that Solomon's wisdom surpassed all of the people of the east and all of the wisdom of Egypt. For he was wiser than all the other men, wiser than Ethan, the Ezraite, and I love this, wiser than He-Man, wiser than 80s Arnold Schwarzenegger, that's great, and Calcol and Dada and the sons of Mahol, and his fame was in the surrounding nations. He also spoke 3,000 proverbs, wrote most of the book of Proverbs, and his songs were 1,005 uh, including the Song of Songs, and he wrote a couple of psalms as well. Ecclesiastes is accredited to him too. He spoke of trees from the, the cedar that is in Lebanon and, and to the hyssop that it grows out the wall. He sp also spoke of beasts and birds and reptiles and fish. And people of all the nations came to hear the wisdom of Solomon from all the kings of the earth who had heard of his wisdom. Solomon was a wise dude. He, he knew a lot about the world, about the flora, about the fauna. Uh, he was discerning. And people would come. And this is kind of an era before TED Talks, before Netflix. Like This would be like top quality entertainment and information, people coming just to hear uh, the king speak. And in fact, there's a particular uh, famous encounter where the Queen of Sheba, she comes and, and she comes with all her hard questions uh, to Solomon. And uh, she throws them at her and Solomon answers all her questions and we read in chapter 10, verse 9, that she's just like, wow, like, you're amazing, but actually, I'm going to praise your God. She says, blessed be the Lord your God, who has delighted in you and set you on the throne of Israel, because the Lord loved Israel forever. He has made you king, that you may execute justice and righteousness. Solomon, he's wise, he's, being, he's, he's bringing blessing to the world, 
Could this be the one who is worthy to sit on the throne? Could this be the snake crusher? We've seen the wisdom of Solomon. Next, we see the wealth of Solomon. Come back, with, come back to chapter 3. Remember the, the prayer, the dream that, um, that, that Solomon has where he meets God. He asks him, what do you want? Uh, chapter 3, verse 14, God actually gives him something else uh, beyond wisdom. Chapter 3, verse 13, I give you also what you have not asked, both riches and honor, so that no king shall compete compare with you all your days. And if you will walk in my ways, keeping my statutes and my commandments as your father David walked, then I will lengthen your days. See, God, he gives him a bit of a two-for-one deal. He asks for wisdom, he gets wisdom, but he also gets riches. And in fact, he's going to be richer than any king before him. God's, God's people, they're under the blessing of a rich king. And have a look at the picture of what that looks like. This was the first verse read out for us before. Verse, chapter 4, uh, verse 20. Judah and Israel were as many as the, as the sand by the sea. There's just so many people. They ate and drank and were happy. Times were good. Solomon ruled over all the kingdoms from the Euphrates to the land of the Philistines and to the border of Egypt. And they brought tribute, they brought stuff, they brought cash and served Solomon all the days of his life. Things were good. Things were good for the people living under Solomon's rule. And we even read uh, that bit, uh, verse 22, about his daily provisions. You know, he would have um, 3,000 kilograms of 30 cores of flour and uh, 60 cores of meal and 10 fat cows and uh, 20 pasture-fed cows, you know, organic kind of wagyu material. Like, things are going well for, for Solomon and for his people. There's this picture of abundance, of blessing. God's chosen king are living with his people under God's rule. Things are good. Employment's happening. He's building stuff, uh, stimulating the economy. They're thankful for what is happening. Now, money, right? Like, money's, money's one of the, the misunderstood parts of the Bible. You know, the most misquoted verse of the Bible, I think, is money is the root of all evil, when in fact it's the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. See, money in itself, it's not a bad thing. It's a good thing. It's a thing that God gives for us to use, to serve, to honor Him. And so God, He's giving Solomon money to, to, to steward it, to bless people with. And he's, he's doing that. He's being productive and resourceful. He's providing employment. Um, but we'll see that that actually gets to his downfall in a second. We'll see that we've seen the, the wisdom of Solomon, the wealth of Solomon. But finally, let's get to the worship of Solomon. So God, He's given Solomon a whole bunch of money. What's He going to do with it? Well, come with me to chapter 6, verse 11. Chapter 6, verse 11. Now the word of the Lord came to Solomon concerning this house that you're building. If you will walk in my statues and obey my rules and keep all my commandments and walk in them, then I'll establish my word with you, which I spoke to David, your father. And I will dwell among the children of Israel and will not forsake my people Israel. Here we see again the picture of the covenant, God's promises to David renewed. Um, and so Solomon, he's building a house. Why is he building a house? Who's it for? Well, it's so that God's people, so that God could dwell with his people. He's building the temple. And in fact, uh, David, even though he was described as the high king of Israel, he was the guy that, um, that, that the other kings are compared to, David actually didn't have the privilege of building the temple. 
We can read about that in 1 Chronicles 22, that uh, actually it was Solomon, that he was the one that's going to build the temple. But now what's significant, though, about this temple? Just the building, right? Well, if you remember, and maybe you're with us during our Exodus series, God's people, they built the tabernacle. The tabernacle was like this big moving tent structure where the presence of God would go with his people. Uh, it's where the, where the people would come together for, for worship. Uh, it's where God would dwell with them. But he promised that, that one day there'd been a land and that his presence would be with them forever. And here they are. They've made it to the promised land. They've made it to Israel. And in Jerusalem, this temple was being established so that God's people could come together and worship. You know, kind of like we've been, you know, COVID, we've been doing online church, things like that. Imagine for a while, you know, months and months of online church. Finally, we can come back here to the temple of the Palace Barrack Cinema. Now, that would be great, but that would be awesome, right? To finally come back after months and months of meeting online. It's sort of a little bit like that, but it's even more significant. See, back then, they didn't have the Holy Spirit in their hearts. When two or three were gathered together, God's presence wasn't with them like he is today for the Christian. So it's more than just a gathering place. It's also a place where the presence of God and the, the favor of God is with his people. Uh, and, and we see uh, it's great detail, uh, which you can read about, chapter 6, 7, and 8, about uh, the precious stones that were used to build the temple, the, the finest wood from Lebanon. But in particular, come with me um, to verse 16 uh, of chapter 6. Um, and now Solomon, he built 20 cubits of the rear of the, of the house with boards of cedar from the floor to the walls. And he built this within as an inner sanctuary, as the most holy place. It's the most holy place where the presence of God is dwelt. And how is it described? Uh, I'm going to read from verse 20 to 22 and see if you can pick up a recurring word that appears. Verse 20. The inner sanctuary was 20 cubits long, 20 cubits wide, and 20 cubits high. The word's not cubit, by the way. That's not the word I'm looking for. Um, means a bit over a foot, like 50 centimeters. And he laid it with pure gold. He also overlaid it an altar of cedar, and, a, and Solomon overlaid the inside of the house with pure gold. And he drew chains of gold across, and in front of the inner sanctuary, and overlaid it with gold. And he overlaid the whole house with gold until the house was finished, and and also the whole altar that belonged to the inner sanctuary, he overlaid with gold. There we go, gold. This picture, this golden room, uh, that everything was lavished in gold. It's this picture of, of glory, of wonder, just pointing to, to the majesty of who God is. He's the one that's going to be dwelling in this temple. And to the picture it's meant to, of the temple, it's meant to rep represent a picture of peace, of safety, of, of, of Shalom, of Shlomo, where, where Solomon is dwelling, uh, with, Solomon is with God, looking after his people where they come together to worship. And Solomon, he, he continues the praise in, in chapter 8. Flick over to verse 12. Chapter 8, verse 12. Then Solomon said to the Lord, uh, said, The Lord has said that he would dwell in thick darkness. I indeed have built you an exalted house a place for you to dwell in forever. And check out, jump down to verse 23. Um, and this is what Solomon said, O Lord God of Israel, there is no God like you in heaven above or on earth beneath, keeping covenant and showing steadfast love to your servants who walk before you with all their heart. 
And here we see this beautiful prayer. Solomon, he's worshipping God. There's no one like you. There's a picture of gospel hope there. And we see, if we keep reading that chapter, in verse 41, there's, there's this missional prayer that would the nations come and come to the temple and they see, um, they see and hear about who God is and what he's doing. They, they too would come and put their trust in him. We see this prayer of repentance, of God's forgiveness, of his, of his gracious nature and kindness. We see all that all throughout chapter 8. Things look like they're going well. But what happens? Well, how does God respond to Solomon's prayers. Flick, with, flick over to chapter 9, verse 3. The Lord said to him, I've heard your prayer and your plea, uh, which you have made before me. I've consecrated this house that you've built by putting my name there forever. My heart and my, my eyes and my heart will be there for all time. God's responding positively. Could Solomon be the one? Verse 4, and as for you, if you will walk with me as David your father walked with integrity of heart and uprightness, doing according to all that I've commanded you and keeping my statutes and rules, then I'll establish your royal throne over Israel forever, as I promised David your father, saying, you shall not lack a man on the throne of Israel. Solomon, if you just continue to walk in me, then I'll be with you forever. Your throne will be established, will be secure. Things, things look good for Solomon. Things look good for the people of God. But the next word is, is a very important word. Uh, and if you want to, the word's but. And uh, if you want to be like, understand the Bible, an important word that you need to know is but. You need to love buts. In fact, this is a big but that you need to love. And I'm not lying. There you go. Um, so keep reading. This is important, right? Verse, verse 6. But, but if you turn aside from me, from following me, you or your children, and do not keep my commands and my statutes that I've set before you, and go, but go and serve other gods and worship them, then I'll cut Israel off from the land that I've given them. And the house that I've consented, consecrated for my name, I'll cast out of my sight. And Israel will become a proverb and a byword among all peoples. And this house will become a heap of ruins. But if you do not follow me, if you start to worship other gods, I'm going to bring about judgment. And Israel are going to become a laughingstock for the world. So how will Solomon respond? Is he going to choose to continue to walk in obedience and faithfulness to God, or will he choose the world? Flick over to chapter 11. We'll see what happens. Verse 1. Now, King Solomon loved many foreign women, along with the daughter of Pharaoh, Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidonian, um, and Hittite women. So Solomon, he loved many foreign women. What's wrong with that? He's a lover, not a fighter. It's good, yeah? No, there's, there's two issues, right? Keep reading, uh, verse 2. Um, so uh, God says, uh, From the nations concerning which, with, uh, which the Lord had said to the people of Israel, You shall not enter into marriage with them, neither they shall with you. For they will, they will surely they will turn away your heart after their gods. And Solomon clung to these in love. So what's the issue? Well, God had outlined in Exodus um, previously that God's people shouldn't enter into marriage with 
foreigners. Uh, it's not like this kind of xenophobic thing or this racist thing. No, no. It's so that people wouldn't go and pursue other gods and start worshipping them. And, and Solomon, even more than that, as the king, uh, we can read about this in Deuteronomy 17, that the king in particular, he wasn't meant to have many wives. He wasn't meant to acquire much gold or horses for himself. Otherwise, his heart would be led astray. And so what does Solomon do? Does he just kind of have like five wives? Does he have like 20 wives? Well, if you know the story, verse 3, he has 700 wives who were princesses. 700 wives. It's a lot. And on top of that, I've got one wife, man, 700. Um, um, 700 wives, and on top of that, 300 concubines like on the side. Man, Solomon's heart, it's being led astray. Why? Because he's choosing to worship what they're choosing. He's choosing to be interested in what they are interested in. And ultimately, that's taking him away from worshipping God. And, and we see, actually, I, I missed a whole bunch of verses, but you see, uh, right from the start, Solomon, he, his first wife is with daughter of Egypt. So he, he goes and marries an Egyptian, makes an alliance there. Egypt in the Bible is always bad news. Um, and so we see all throughout Solomon's life, these cracks, they start to emerge. And we'll see the judgment of God unfolded and unpacked throughout chapter 11. But just as an aside, let me just talk just briefly about, about dating. You know, um, sometimes people ask one of the popular questions, you know, if I'm a Christian, you know, can I date someone who's not a follower of Jesus? You know, there's, um, there's no like, specific verse in the Bible that directly answers that question, uh, although I think 2 Corinthians 6.14, uh, talking about being unequally yoked, gets at a principle there. But a bigger question than that is what does God want? What does God want from us? He wants us, ultimately, whether you're dating, married, single, divorced, He wants us to worship Him. He wants us to worship Him. And so if, you, if you're a Christian, if you love Jesus, and that's what your life is about, and you date someone that isn't on about that, is that a sin? Well, I think it's at least unwise. Why? Because you'll, you'll be tempted. Uh, you'll be tempted, like Solomon was, to, to have your heart turned away. Uh, you know, over the years, I think the number one reason I've seen people walk away from the Christian faith is because they start dating someone who isn't on about Jesus. It might even be someone that called themselves a follower of Jesus, but ultimately their life is not on about Jesus. And typically, it's not just the next day they kind of throw in the faith. No, typically, it's kind of only a number of years, three years later, maybe, they are no longer following Jesus. You know, for the Christian, the purpose of dating is marriage. And if you love Jesus and you want to make him known, why would you not want to marry someone who genuinely loves Jesus? Now, by God's grace and kindness, I know plenty of stories of people that have come to know Jesus where one you know, member of the relationship is not a follower of Jesus. But you know, the flirt to convert strategy, the missionary dating, like it's not wise. It's not wise. And so if you're not married... Uh, if you're dating, even if you're engaged, or perhaps you're thinking of dating, can I just say, don't even say, I want to date a Christian. If you say that, I think you're setting your standards too low. Can I say, date someone that loves Jesus, that life is on about Jesus, and that will help me worship and honor him and make him known. Date someone that has God as the number one priority in their life. If you are married, someone that isn't a believer, Stay with them, pray for them, 
uh, and by your words, by your actions, may, you, uh, may God be gracious and kind to them and keep praying for them. Back to, two, back to 1 Kings. Uh, I encourage you to, to read uh, 1 Kings 2 to 11 uh, this week. I just covered 10 chapters pretty quick. Uh, there's heaps more detail, heaps more, heaps more gold uh, in there. Um, and, um, and as you read it, you'll, you'll see that the cracks in the story, uh, the cracks behind me, kind of emerge. Um, you'll see that... Um, yeah, you'll see that Solomon, he, he, his first act, actually, as king is to kind of go and inflict murder and revenge on... Um, he gets his henchman, Ben and I, he goes and kills a bunch of people. You see kind of shadiness kind of emerge from the start. Uh, and you see in, in chapter 11, the judgment of God. God, he's angry. Uh, and over the next few weeks, we're going to see the implications of that. The kingdom is going to be torn in two. We're going to see kings uh, that, are, that are not even not only condoning, but actually you know, propagating worship of other gods. We'll see judgment, but we'll see the grace of God. I won't give away any more. But this question that I asked at the start, who is worthy to sit on the throne? Well, it's not Solomon. It's not Solomon, clearly, as we have seen. Despite his many strengths, it's not us. You know, we in lots of ways are like Solomon, gifted, able to, to love God and do incredible things, and yet vulnerable. We have our hearts that are led astray. And as I invite the band up, let me tell you about another king who comes a thousand years after Solomon, who, like Solomon, was wise. Uh, he was the wisest man who ever lived. In fact, I'm talking about Jesus. You know, when he taught, he would gather crowds and crowds would come just to hear him speak. Houses were packed out. The religious teachers would say of Jesus, he's taught not like the other teachers. He actually knows his stuff. He teaches with authority. And even today, people that aren't Christians claim to, that Jesus was a wise teacher and they uphold his teaching today. If you are a follower of Jesus, uh, in James chapter 1, verse 6, it says that if any of you lacks wisdom... Uh, you should ask, pray to God who gives graciously, generously, without fault. If you're a Christian, it means that you've been united with Christ. You've got the spirit of Jesus living inside you. You have access to his wisdom. God speaks to us through his word. Jesus, he is worthy. He is wiser than Solomon. But secondly, we see in Jesus a king that is wealthier than Solomon. Jesus, he sits on the eternal throne. He came down from heavenly riches to earth to become poor so that you might become rich. And as we've looked at Jesus' life over the last few weeks in Luke, we see that Jesus even invites himself around to dinner so that he can be fed. Uh, but we see a king that actually has everything. And if we trust in Jesus, we get access to his riches, uh, to treasure in heaven that will never spoil, perish, or fade. Jesus, he's the king of kings. He's the snake crusher who defeated the curse of sin on the cross and the sting of death by rising triumphantly three days later. If you trust in Jesus, these eternal riches are on offer for you. And finally, um, we see Jesus who, unlike Solomon, who was tempted and succumbed to the world, Jesus too was tempted by Satan, offered the kingdom of this world but instead he said, no, I'm going to trust my Father. And so Jesus did not worship the world. And yet we're called to worship the true king, the true snake crusher. And so my question for you, are you worshipping Jesus? Or are you like Solomon, worshipping the world? 
Solomon, he prayed these gospel prayers. He had a heart for God, and yet ultimately he was dragged away. Friends, if you've been tempted by the world this week, this season, these months, there's always grace. God would love for you to come back. He's already forgiven you. He's died on the cross for you in Jesus. Come back to him. Choose Jesus over the world because it's better. Why don't I pray? Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much for what you have done in Jesus. Thank you that he is the better Solomon. He is the wiser, the wealthier, and the Solomon, the, the, the true and better Solomon that should be worshipped. Uh, Lord, I pray uh, that this week, this month, uh, this year, that we can see Jesus. We can see how every treasure of this world pales in comparison. Help us as a community uh, to encourage each other, to be gracious and to be pointing each other back to Jesus, to be taking off our masks, to be allowing uh, our, others in, to be able to speak truth and point out our, our folly and our failure. And help us as a church, as a community, to know Jesus and make Jesus known. And in his name we pray, all of God's people said, Amen. Thank you for listening to our podcast. If you'd like to know more about our church, or if you'd like to donate to the work of City on a Hill, please visit cityonahill.com.au.